good morning to everyone. Great to see you all here. Um, and I hope you will uh, really enjoy your time with us here this morning. Let's just uh, open in prayer. Uh, Father God, we thank you for bringing us here this morning to hear your word. I praise you, pray you will open up our hearts and minds um, and in, in the knowledge that there is nothing that we can do in our own strength and that it is you that will change us and help us to grow in knowledge of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God saves. Um, it sounds like a simple idea. It, it is a simple idea. It is, in fact, a fact. Um, but that doesn't stop us from messing it up, does it? We do get in the way of God. Now, last week, we looked at how Jonah had rebelled against God and tried to run from God. And he had run from the task of bringing a message of repentance, forgiveness, and salvation from judgment to Israel's enemies in the city of Nineveh. And if we just think about what Jesus challenged us at the end of Matthew, um, to go out and share the gospel with everyone around us. So this passage might not seem connected, but it does have um, a relevance and a challenge, I think, to us all here this morning. But Nineveh, well, Joseph, uh, Jonah didn't think they deserved salvation. They were, after all, God's enemies. And he thought that that meant God should not save them. In fact, shouldn't even give them the opportunity to be saved because he was the God of Israel. But as we shall see, it's because God loves sinners that he seeks to save through his grace and mercy. It's understandable for Jonah to be afraid. After all, going to Nineveh is a bit like going to a mafia meeting and then halfway through saying, I'm with the police. Um, not something that you would really want to do, is it? Or would be very sensible to do. So we can understand that. But apart from physical threats, he also might be considered as a traitor by those in Israel for going to speak to them. Now, whatever his excuses, good or bad, he decided to run away. Offering salvation to his nation's enemies was not his idea of how things should be done. They were not, and it wasn't the way that he thinks he should save. Um, sorry. Uh, <clears throat> right, so he had rebelled and he had cut himself off from God's promises for a one-way ticket away from God. He was rejecting God and that is what sin is. But God is not done with Jonah. Jonah had created a problem between himself and God and God is going to make clear who is in charge it's at this point that God teaches us all an essential lesson. Jonah is a rebel, yes. He is guilty, but God comes after him. So the ship that Jonah had got on to run away from God was suddenly caught up in a storm. One that the sailors fear is going to break their ship and drown them all. Jonah is literally and figuratively all at sea. The storm displays God's power and judgment. The ship is the situation we are all in. The crew are those who do not know God. And Jonah is, we have to say, a reluctant witness to God the Saviour. Jonah does not pray or react in any way through these uh, few verses. In fact, through the events, he says hardly anything at all. Maybe as he looks on the storm, he realises what a fool he was to think he could leave God behind. So he's resigned to his fate. His running away had failed. He was facing death in a ship filled with people he thought should not be saved. Of course, our first point here is the universal problem that we all have, which is sin. 
And we can see here that turning away from God and doing things our own way is where sin always starts. But just before we begin verse 7, we need to think about what the sailors had done so far. They'd followed their own gods, they'd spent their whole lives away from God, which is, of course, where we all start. And so we are all under judgment. But now, though, this crew cried out to their gods and had thrown their cargo overboard. They'd even found a passenger, amazingly, asleep in this wild storm and asked him to pray. They were almost out of ideas. Their idols, their gods, and their own efforts had come to nothing. What was left for them to do? Well, we see in verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and a lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has uh, come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. The sailors were desperate. They want to know, to find out which God is responsible for the storm they are in, and they hope that that will allow them in some way to know how to appease this God. Now at that time, the main belief was in many different gods, um, and these different gods controlled different aspects of nature or different purposes. Um, but they were associated with geographical areas. Now, most people would have a personal god and a family god and a national god. Now, the crew hoped that they would be able to, to solve their problem by controlling the situation through a god. And a common way at that time to answer an unanswerable question was to use lots. They would roll dice or stones to try to, to define the will of their gods. It's ironic that the crew are the ones who ask for supernatural help and not the prophet Jonah. So the stones were rolled and the sailors hoped their gods would decide where it would fall. And of course the lots fall on Jonah. And it's God who allows Jonah to be identified as the guilty one who has put everyone in danger. In verse 8, they now bombard him with questions. There is, after all, little time to spare. They hoped that this information would allow them to have some idea about what to do. What was it that Jonah might have done? How could it be put right? They're treating God as one of their own gods, as they hope to control the situation. It's a bit sad and ironic, isn't it, that they're treating him so fairly, giving him every chance to put things right when he denied those in Nineveh the same opportunity. And in verse 9, Jonah finally speaks. He says that he is a Hebrew. The sailors believed there were hundreds of gods. Even in Israel, there were those who had turned from God to Baal and Asherah, for example. But here, Jonah is making it absolutely clear that he follows the one God who is to be feared. That his God is the ruler of heaven, so above all others, and that he is the God, the creator of the land and sea. Now, whether Jonah feared the Lord enough is difficult to decide. His actions so far do not perhaps suggest this, but if, he but if he did not really fear God, I'm pretty sure he's at least beginning to by now. The Bible says fear is the beginning of wisdom. Now maybe we need to consider how we look at God. Do we look at him with awe at his power? Do we look at him with a heart that is ready to serve him? Or do we try to put up barriers? Jonah seems to have wanted to decide who he would preach to, when God wants to send him somewhere he doesn't, he doesn't want to go, he runs away. But only now does he realize that God is not limited by geography. We have to ask ourselves, do we turn away from God like Jonah? 
Are we in danger of drifting away from God and into sin? Are we reluctant to witness to God's salvation? Our barriers might not be distant. Perhaps they are just the excuses we make up. So, for example, you know, I don't have the time at the moment. Or I don't really have the ability to do that. I'm not good at talking. Or maybe we say, well, today's not right. And maybe it'd be better to wait for a more providential time. But God shows us here that we cannot hide our reluctance to do things his way when he wants them done. Jonah is not meant to be a perfect example to follow. We, like Jonah, are called to share the good news of salvation to any and to everyone we meet. And of course, we, like Jonah, fail to witness. Remember that our success or failure is not down to us. As, we'll see, as, you, as you will see later in chapters of, of the book of Jonah, God takes the weakest and most negative example in Jonah and turns it into a salvation success story. Everyone starts so far from God, we could never reach him until he calls to us. Then, like Jonah, God doesn't give up on us. Our second point is that we need to know that sin has consequences. Um, verse 10 to 13. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Well, now the crew know the truth, and they are really afraid. And they're perhaps amazed by Jonah's actions. As the storm worsens, and the wind and the rain are hurled at the ship, which they are in just as much danger as Jonah, how can they, they think, how can they escape God's judgment? It's just getting closer and closer. Um, Hebrew 10.31 tells us it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, in verse 10, we see that it's clear that the crew understand the issue. They're dumbfounded by Jonah's answer. It's the crew who truly fear God. Jonah has put them all in danger. Jonah disobeyed God. What have you, do what have you done is not just a question. It's actually a cry of, you're guilty. Looking at the storm, they can see the consequences of his actions. They recognize that sin has to be paid for. And just think about how crazy this situation is. Jonah's trying to run away from the creator of the seas in a boat, which is in the sea. Um, when it comes to doing the wrong thing, it really doesn't make sense a lot of the time. So now the sailors are stuck on a boat with him. And uh, Jonah's like a lightning conductor. That's where the full force of the storm is going to be. And he's standing right next to them. And again, it's sadly ironic that they have to turn to Jonah. I mean, um, any of their gods might, if it had been any of their other gods, they might have known what to do, but even if it wouldn't help. But they know nothing of the Lord, and the only help they can turn to is the one who's dropped them right in it. Perhaps they were worried that uh, they were wrong in taking them on board, a sort of guilt by association. The best they can hope for is that only Jonah himself is to blame for whatever he's done. You can understand their rising panic. They don't want to die, but they're caught up with Jonah as he faces the consequences. So what a position they're now in. They have to choose because God requires a response. So they ask Jonah, what should we do to you? Notice the emphasis on the you. 
And from verse 11, now knowing that there is a penalty that is required, in verse 12, we learn what that penalty is. And Jonah's statement is shocking. They must kill him. His statement is also a confession of guilt, but not notice of repentance. It is what he believes he deserves. He can only see one thing to do. He has been judged and found guilty, and maybe his sacrifice would save the sailors as well. His answer is one of conscience and not compassion. His being on the ship has led to their ruin, so it's the only thing he really can do. So now he's going to give his life for a few sailors when he would not risk his life going to Nineveh and offering a whole city the chance of salvation. The sailors, well, it seems they've still not got the idea. They decide to try and row back to shore. Here again, they're still turning away from God, trying to do things their own way. Maybe they're reluctant to kill someone, of course. So they row. They dig in their oars, the, the original language tells us. But it's all to no effect. The storm gets worse. God is saying, no. They failed because this was not God's will. So they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. They don't wish to kill, and they fear judgment, perhaps for killing Jonah. So a third point to look at is like the crew, we need to know that only God is sovereign in salvation. Um, verses 14 to 17, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The crew finally turned to God. They've recognized that only God can save them. So they call out to him for guidance and his saving help. Now, in their prayer, you can see they ask to be saved from death, yes. They ask for forgiveness for what they are about to do. And it's clear that they depend only on God, who they believe now is the sovereign of salvation. They pray they might be free of Jonah's innocent blood and then pray that they're doing God's will. Judgment must be paid or there is no justice. God's justice demands payment and cannot be ignored. All through the Old Testament, from Eden onwards, sacrifices were made to give thanks, yes, but to ask for forgiveness of sins. There needs to be a sacrifice, a substitute to pay the price. And so in verse 15, Jonah's thrown into the sea. And here is some more proof, if any more is needed, about the sovereignty and the power of God. The storm stops. What should have taken hours takes no time at all. And the crew are saved. And in verse 16, we show that now the, re the sailors really do fear the Lord. They are in awe and wonder of this God who saved them. They tried all they could. They prayed to their false gods. They'd thrown all their cargo overboard. They tried to row to shore, but they'd not been able to save themselves. Their efforts were totally futile. So, they, so it says in verse 16, they made sacrifices and vows to the God who saved them. Were they converted? It doesn't say. Did they continue to follow him? Did they just include God as one among many? Did some believe or one believe? Well, it could have been any of these things or all of them. The point is, if God chose to save them, they would be saved. And in their sacrifices and vows, they recognize that God can and will save anyone. Well, in verse 17, what of Jonah? How did this little cruise end for him? He had thrown all he believed away when he ran. 
he was brought face to face with the consequences of his actions. And as he entered the sea, he knew he deserved death, but he got grace instead, something no one deserves. Well, now we come to the fish or the whale or whatever. And fish here in the, in the text is just a general word for any sea creature. But I have to say it's a bit of a red herring. <laughs> Sorry, apologize. <laughs> um, people take this whole idea of the fish as proof that the story's not true. And I'm not going to go into it in any great detail, but just to say, we're talking about the ruler and creator of the heavens and the earth and everything in it. God could have made a one-off creature, resurrected an extinct creature, or increased a whale or a shrimp to the size it needed to be for this purpose. It doesn't matter what species it is. It's what it does that is important. So let's look at what it does do. Well, first of all, it is a miracle set by the sovereign ruler at the exact time God had appointed for the fish to swallow Jonah. He was thrown into the sea at that exact moment. What a way to receive God's grace and mercy. <laughs> Jonah had been faced with his own sin. We cannot run from God, only trust in his grace and mercy to turn from our sin and to turn to him. The fish, of course, as you'll find out later, takes him to where God says he should be. God told Jonah to preach forgiveness and salvation to Nineveh, and that is what would happen, despite Jonah's effort to run away. He couldn't escape God's presence or purpose. So finally, we really do need to ask ourselves, do we at times act like Jonah? Are we following God faithfully? When we're asked questions like this, do we suddenly look for excuses? And we can always find excuses for sin, can't we? In fact, we'll always be tempted to make excuses. We try to hide our sins, to run away by making barriers in the hope that we can hide from God. But God's light reveals the truth in our hearts. We can be like Jonah. Maybe we have been going along happily for years. Then like him, we face a situation that just seems a bridge too far, takes us out of our, com our comfort zone. Do we run? Do we crumble and think only of escape? Well, the first point here is that we are never going to be able to turn away from God because God holds on to his children tight, even when they stray. We fight against our own salvation in our efforts to justify ourselves. We need to stop running. We need to be encouraged by Jonah. God is with us and guides us. Yes, maybe we head into the hardest of situations, but that's where we're supposed to be, with God. Jonah had gone to the farthest place he could, yet God brought him back, however resentful Jonah seems to be. When faced with seemingly impossible odds, maybe just talking to our family or friends or colleagues who are opposed and reject God, our courage can fail us. But do we convince ourselves that they cannot be saved? Or do we hide our faith in the cargo hold? Do we flee into the silence while all around a storm is raging? Or do we witness? We can all be Jonas. We can all fail to share, to share God's message with others. We can all fail to see that we are in Nineveh. We've just got to walk outside this building and we're there. We can all hide away, even sleep through the events around us. But if we are committed to God, we will succeed. Not through our own efforts, but because God can act in any situation in spite of us. He will, his will to save will succeed. We need to see how Jonah foreshadows Jesus. He allows a picture of what God's plan has always and will always be. In Luke 11, 29 to 30, it says, when the crowds were increasing, he, that's Jesus, began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. 
For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Matthew 12, 41, um, it adds, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says he's another Jonah, one who is greater than Jonah. Where Jonah fails, Jesus succeeds. He's greater because he submits to the will of God. Jonah's sacrifice was one of conscience. Jesus is out of compassion. Jonah rebelled against God. Jesus served God. Jonah received God's grace. Jesus paid for God's grace. Jonah died because of his sins. Jesus died for the sins of others. Jonah's sacrifice saved the crew of a ship. Jesus' sacrifice saved all who trust in him for their salvation. The storm, the crew, even the fish obey God. We need to make sure we are not making idols out of our own prejudices, that we serve God's saving purpose faithfully and compassionately, that God has called Jonah and all of us to do, to share the good news of salvation with anyone, because Jesus willingly paid the price on the cross. <clears throat> and this is his sign of salvation and life eternal with him. Let's pray. Our Father God, we give you thanks because you are the God who saves that even though we fail and stray, you bring us back. We pray for opportunities to witness to others, and we pray that because of that, many will come to know you. Amen.